Lord Jesus, you are our King. You were seated at the right hand of the Father on your heavenly throne, where you belong, and yet you chose to come to earth. You came to save us when we could not save ourselves. You were the sacrifice for our sins. Let none of us believe that we are without sin. We all sin. And yet you are gracious and merciful and faithful to forgive us. We are so thankful for your love and for your work which was completed on the cross. Holy Spirit, move in us so that we might come to the cross to ask for the forgiveness that we don't deserve. Almighty Father, thank you for your perfect plan. Thank you, Lord, for your servant Paul who wrote these words for us to understand. Open our eyes and give us that understanding. In Jesus' name we ask. Good morning, everybody. Thank you all for coming today to hear God's word as Paul continues to explain how to live the life of the gospel, the good news brought to us by Jesus. As the Apostle Paul wrote to the Ephesians, Today we hear Paul explain to us the position that we hold while we are here on earth and how we should live the life of Christianity. I went through some videos while I was looking at this passage this week, and it was for the family life group that we unfortunately could not go to in March. And um, the two instructors, um, they're quite funny, actually. And it, it, I'm looking forward to next year when we can go, because uh, they, they should be there. And uh, some of the lessons are a little different than, than we've seen previously. There's a couple of good ones. Are all of you tired of this COVID thing yet? I know I am. Yet knowing God has a plan and everything is a part of his plan, this virus means something as well. It's our job to figure out what that meaning is. There's a peace in understanding that no matter what comes, God is in control. We continually lift all of you up in prayer that you are well fed on God's word and are healthy in spirit and in body. We pray for your trials and difficulties. Today we're going to tackle the first part of chapter 6 in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Paul is telling us in this passage of our position in life. Of once knowing our position, we're to walk in love, the love of Jesus, and to become imitators of Christ. Jesus did not have to come down from heaven to rescue us. He chose to do that. He did it because he loves us. We are all in his debt, and we are all under him. He is the God of the universe, and we are truly, incredibly insignificant by comparison. We are so far below him, and our position dictates what our response should be to Christ. This passage today touches on a very fundamental concept of our faith. Next week, we get into a very awesome idea and concept of our faith and what our preparation should be. I was thinking and I was commenting to, to Bill earlier this morning that each of these pieces that we've heard in the last few weeks here have been just beautiful set pieces of the Christian faith. And as I was going through these two passages this week and next week, I was thinking, 
I'll bet Bill's wishing he was doing these. This is really cool. You'll notice this week's passage is a little bit of an addendum to the husband's and wife's instruction. Let's listen and learn from this as explained by the Apostle Paul. So this is Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 6, verses 1 through 9. We're going to do a quick review of just a couple of the things that Bill talked about last week. We're going to look back. Women are to submit to their husbands, and men are to die for their wives. And I know some of you guys are looking back on that passage right now and are going, wait, what? Where did it say that? Husbands, this is Ephesians 5, 25. Ephesians 5, 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did Jesus love the church? He died for the church. He died for us. And so when Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that is a huge thing. And everybody loves to talk about the submission of women. But everybody misses the whole part. Guys, you're supposed to lay it all down for your families. That's what that means. It is one that none of us can meet. God intends for it to be impossible for us to meet this demand because he wants to bring us to our knees so that we rely on him that is the reason god demands perfection in all of this and we cannot do it it is simply impossible and the sooner we realize and give it all up to god the sooner we are in right relationship with christ This is the part of the command to put on the new self, created in the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. And then at the end of this passage, Paul says something incredibly revealing, Ephesians 5:33. However, each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, some of us read that passage and keep right on going. I know I did many, many, many times, probably 30 or 40 times, I read through that passage, kept right on going. But one of the videos that I saw from the Family Life Group got me thinking about this because they spent some time on it. Why did Paul choose to use the word love for the women and the word respect for the men? There's a difference there. Why? Paul says men are to love their wives and women to respect their husbands. Love and respect. In general, women emote a lot more than men. When women are angry or frustrated, the last thing that women are looking for is for a man to fix her problem. But isn't that what guys immediately jump up to do? Here, let me take care of that for you. What's your issue? You know, it's the first thing. I mean, we fix things. And it's the wrong response. Guys, we're supposed to sit there and say, tell me how you feel. And we're supposed <laughs> right? I get this wrong all the time. 
I, my first reaction is always to jump up and help Leanne try and fix the problem. That's not what she's looking for. I'm, we're getting this wrong, all right? She's looking for understanding, for empathy, for compassion. We're supposed to listen and understand, not to fix it for them. And women, guys want nothing more than to be respected. Believe it or not, this is, this is like the number one thing for men. If they're not respected, it's like, this, this is the number one thing. It's your job to cheer for the men in your household, encouragement and support. And that is what makes men feel valued, that they are respected. Getting the man to feel as though he matters. So guys, don't try to fix it. And women, don't try to fix him, right? Criticism, you, you know, critique comes off as criticism. And that's not what, what guys, when we get it right, you know, cheer for us. That, that helps, that reinforces what we're supposed to do. Love and respect. This week, we have Paul using two other relationships in our lives to explain and define our behaviors. So now we're going into Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 9. Ephesians 6, 1 through 9, verse 1. Verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Now, this might seem really obvious, but there's something else Paul is trying to say here. Paul is giving us insight. Children bear the responsibility in carrying out Christ's plan to unify a society. I'm going to say that again. Children bear the responsibility in carrying out Christ's plan to unify a society. Children are to bring unity between the generations. It is the norm in the Gentile culture to see disobedience and rebellion in the younger generation towards their parents and their elders. This is not Christ-like behavior. Verses 2 and 3. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. This commandment is the fourth in the list of ten. And it's the first one not in relationship with God. The first three refer to our relationship and behavior towards God. But the last seven all relate to our relationship to other people. And this is the very first one of those. Do young people always live long if they respect their parents? No. Sometimes God has other plans. Do people always die young if they are disobedient? No. Again, sometimes God uses such people as object lessons, as a warning to not follow the same path. Leanne and I always quote this to each other when we're talking about Keith Richards of the Rolling Stones, right? You see that guy and, and you think, Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. A command to fathers, 
to not be harsh or excessively strict. Fathers are instructed to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. With authority comes responsibility. And this falls on the fathers. The Greek here implies the concepts of nurturing and to help the young flourish. I get the idea of coaching and mentoring here. Adults are responsible for the minds, the emotions, and the physical bodies of children who are themselves youthful bearers of God's divine image. Because of this, children do not exist for the parents. Children do not exist for the parents. In fact, it's the other way around. Parents exist for children. We are to submit to God to help them grow into who God means them to be. God has a plan for them. It is our responsibility to help cultivate that and nurture them to grow into the people that God wants them to be. Our responsibility is great in this command. We're to tell them about Jesus. We're to model Jesus in front of them. The good Lord knows how often I have failed in this regard, in not being a good example for my sons, in not teaching them as I should have. This closes the example of God's teaching about children and parents, about how this reflects the relationship between Jesus and the Father about the relationship between the church and Jesus, and about the relationship between us and God, and the relationships between each of us. But there's more. And this next passage is a fascinating one, because again, it's another one of those that you could just read and keep right on going, just blow right through it, because you think, this really doesn't apply to us today. Bond servants and masters, verse 5. Bond servants and masters, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. In the translation from Greek into English, I suspect the translators were trying very hard not to jar our sensibilities in choosing the word bond servant. It's not entirely correct. There's another word that applies here, and it's one that jolts us a bit more. In Greek, the word here is doulos, and a direct and literal translation of the word would be slave. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm going to read this whole passage. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Paul is really laying it here on the Philippian church. Count others as being more than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Christ Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Paul is laying it on really heavy here for the Philippian church. But this is exactly the point. This is the position that we have relative to Christ. And each one of these relationships is explained in the same way. But now Paul is talking about slaves and masters. He's talking to the slaves first. He's telling the slaves, submit to your masters. Think about that. Slaves, submit to your masters. Notice that this applies to the greatest among us, all the way to the least of us. We are all to submit before God. 1 Corinthians 7.21. 1 Corinthians 7.21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Paul is saying, if you are a slave, continue to serve. But if you can free yourself, you should do that. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Paul's trying to tell them, despite your position, you are a new creation before God. Slaves were amongst the least of people. They had sold their freedom. Paul says here to not concern themselves with their low position in life. And being that new creation, we have the crux of the situation. When we come into Christ, when we choose to follow Jesus, we become a new creation before God. And if God should regard us as such, then we are to behave as such as well. 1 Corinthians 7.23. This is just a, one short passage after the, the previous one that I read. 1 Corinthians 7.23. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Now, Paul is clearly making an implication here that we were paid for by Jesus' death on the cross. Do not become bondservants of men. Jesus purchased us with his blood. We have been paid for. For us to fail and admit failure and then to compound it by becoming a slave under another person, this is not a position that a Christian should put themselves into. By doing so, the Christian has become the slave of two masters, God and their master. Christians should not do this. 
verse 6, back in Ephesians 6. Verse 6. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. We are to not appear as one thing and then behave differently than the thing we have portrayed. This is hypocrisy. We are not to do this thing just to please others. We are slaves to Jesus and belong to God to do his will. We are to portray God as he truly is, a loving father. Verses 7 and 8. And Paul's still speaking to the slaves here. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good someone does, he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or whether he's free. Here in verses 7 and 8, we are to render good service to the will of God and not to the will of man. Everything we do is to be done towards the will of God. And we do this knowing that God knows what is in our hearts. If we do our tasks grudgingly, will God not regard our effort as less than we should offer up to him? If we do our tasks with joy in our hearts, does God not regard us highly as one of his loved children? This point was brought out during the Reformation. We've talked of the Reformation before. It was the point where several thoughtful Christian leaders realized the church had strayed from its clear instruction on this point. Notice the clear implication that we are to regard all work as being done for God. Everything we do is to be done for the glory of God. The reformers were trying to reclaim this idea that we are commanded to do all work as doing it for God. There was a thought at that time that somehow the work that the priests were doing was more important than common work. And we still have some of that implication today. But the reformers said, no, everything that everyone does, if they do it to the will of God, to please God, then you're not earning your way to heaven, but you are doing what is pleasing to God as one of his loving children. This is what the reformers were trying to recapture. And the church did not go down this path. How would doing this change the way we do our work? What would it cause us to do? How would we view doing our work in knowing that we are doing it because God wanted that work done? How would we behave? There's a great line between the Wright brothers. Every time I encounter this one, I love it. In the winter of 1903, early in the year, it's dark and cold in Dayton, Ohio, and the two brothers are working in their small, unheated bicycle shop. They're building the world's first airplane. And Orville turns and says to Wilbur, 
Isn't it amazing that God has hidden all these secrets all these years just for us to find? Think about that. It's freezing cold, and they're working on building this thing that they don't know will work or not. And Orville's telling Wilbur, isn't it amazing? God has hidden all these secrets just for us to find. And it's freezing cold. I love this. Continuing on in Ephesians 6, verse 9. Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, that there is no partiality with him. Boom. Mic drop. The masters are being told to treat their slaves well and to stop threatening them. Because the masters know that God is above the, both the slaves and above them. There is no special favoritism for those in authority. In fact, God gives authority to those above and requires extra responsibility for such positions. The people who take advantage of their positions in this way, this is not good. Do you recall all the times what Jesus used to say to the Pharisees and the scribes? Woe unto you, Pharisees and scribes. Every time. By the 1400s, the church had become bound in traditions. And the traditions had been created, and they departed from what the Bible said. And there were three reformers that led a spiritual revolt against the church. John Calvin, Martin Luther, and Ulrich Zwingli. It was not that the reformers thought to split from the church. In fact, what they were doing was trying to save the church. But those in power would not give up their power. So the only choice the reformers had was to submit to the church or to submit to God. And this is why the Protestant churches exist. Our forebears protested the fundamentals of the church. And the church had become bound to tradition. It was God plus tradition. And anytime it's God plus anything, that's wrong. Jesus is dying on the cross. What does Jesus say? It is complete. It is done. It is whole. Jesus paid it all. Jesus is the only one that can pay it all. When you think about God plus tradition, was Christ's death on the cross sufficient for salvation? Did Jesus' death pay for our sins completely? Or is there some earthly power that is necessary along with Jesus' sacrifice for us to be saved? You all know the answer to this. The number one quoted verse, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. 
It is Jesus. It is only Jesus. And this is what the reformers were fighting and dying for, to save the faith. This is why we are the Protestants. What are we protesting? That it should be Jesus plus anything. That's what we're protesting against. To us, it is Jesus, period. The reformers put together what they called the five onlys. In Latin, only is the word sola, derived from the word sola, which means one. And the five onlys are by scripture alone, by grace alone, by faith alone, by Christ alone, glory to God alone. And this is why we devote everything we do to God. He sees it all, everything everything we do. Are we doing our work with a cheerful heart? Are we faithfully doing our work to those who are above us? I think about those words of the Wright brothers. They were discovering the secrets of the universe that God had designed and created, and the joy, the surprise, and the heartfelt excitement they had in their work. No wonder it drove them to do the things that they did. And it should be so for us, doing our work with joy, knowing that what we are doing, we do for Jesus. Being that Christian example so that others might see our Heavenly Father in our work. Paul gives us this incredible view into the way we are to live our lives. God created these things not to be a distraction, not to be a drudgery, we are to be cheerful in our conduct, no matter the task. The word we do may be trivial to society and the world, but we are doing this for God. I try and remember this when my back hurts and I'm doing dishes, right? Or I'm vacuuming. This is the whole difference between Mary and Martha. Jesus is trying to tell us something. It's a test. Are we passing? Are we doing what we're supposed to? No. <laughs> no. Way too often I complain about things. But that's not what we're supposed to do. If by our actions people can see the hands and feet of Jesus serving them, how great is that? God loves us. God's mercy and love for us is beyond our comprehension or understanding. God has chosen us to be part of his church. Jesus has purchased us for redemption. If you've not believed in Jesus yet, and you want this free gift of God, all you have to do is accept Jesus as your Savior. Do not wait. Pray to Jesus and ask him to come into your heart right now. Let's pray. Oh, precious Lord, we have been so guilty of not seeking the well-being of others. We pray and think selfishly. Whether it is the lack of love in our hearts was expressed in silence or the willful rejection of your call to share love and truth and Jesus with our enemies. God, give us the desire to be swift in obedience to you never to demand our own way or to question your mercy, grace, 
truth and authority. Lord, give grace to this message. We see Paul here giving display to the great power and the majesty of God. How great is our God. Let the messenger be small and of no consequence. And help us to see Jesus, even as we are being made more like your Son. We thank you and we praise you. You are so great, God. We ask you this in the great name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.